Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I'm very fortunate to have Daryl Norkit back on the show. He is the Head of Real Estate Proposition at Shawbrook. And I'm not sure of the exact date, but you were on this show in 2019, Daryl, which I can't believe that's the first time you're on it. I think you have been on it since then. But I do remember it was the very first week of lockdown. Uh, we did a Zoom recording with myself, you, and I think Adam, and maybe Manish as well. And and we all sat there kind of discussing what we thought was going to happen and all this stuff. So yeah, a long time ago. How are you? I'm very good. Um, and it's uh, it's been long enough since we made some of those what probably look pretty dodgy. Uh, first week of lockdown, COVID-type predictions, the world's moved on. It's kept turning. But yeah, all good. We were all pretty bullish on property, actually, then. So I don't think it's been too bad. Yeah. So, Daryl, obviously, being at Shawbrook on the real estate part, give us your take, give us a bit of kind of brief background as to what's been going on in the lending and mortgage markets over the past few months. It's been a really interesting and fairly difficult trading environment, actually, for about 18 months now since the kind of interest rate hiking cycle started. So, I mean, the story this time last year, and perhaps a bit before now as well, was all about an absolute wave of refinance business hitting the mortgage market, particularly buy to let, where everyone could see interest rates were going to go up quite quickly. But at the time, there were still some pretty attractive five-year fixed rates available. And so there was a, a big wave of people pulling their refinance business forward, trying to get a deal into a, a lender and trying to get it locked away to kind of ride out the, the Bank of England base rate increases. And hopefully, by the time those deals expire, see a much lower interest rate environment at the back of all of that. So it's incredibly busy. And it was like that across the market. So nearly every lender experienced really significant in processing delays. We weren't immune from that at all. Some lenders, some smaller lenders struggled to honour their pipeline where price points had just moved on them and they didn't have sufficient protections in their own business model to manage their own interest rate risk. And that, that caused some disruption. But by and large, most lenders managed to get those pipelines delivered. And that took up a lot of the market activity kind of over the winter and into Q1 this year. Um, the story of kind of post that, though, is one of, you know, ultimately for most lenders, much lower buy to let lending volumes than they've been used to the past couple of years in particular, as the market needs to adjust ultimately to a new dynamic, a new normal. And, it's, and whilst rents are rising very, very quickly, property values have maintained. And it does take time for yields to correct themselves to the point where loan affordability gets back to something what it looked like um, in 2020 and 2021. So I've got a few few things I want to ask and rabbit holes, I guess we might go down from that from those points, which are great. So when you mentioned some of those banks kind of had to basically, I guess it's pulling products that were too cheap for them at the time because they had processing delays, things like that going on. What were some of the protections maybe they should have had in place that they didn't? And I guess what can what can we look what can banks learn from that? I think it's interesting to discuss this for certainly those borrowers to understand really how that kind of mortgage market works, I guess. 
Yeah, well, the, the first thing to point out on that is that banks are not the only buy-to-let mortgage lender in the UK anymore. There's actually a significant niche of non-bank lenders who provide a lot of specialist buy-to-let mortgage lending now. And their funding arrangements are different. So it will depend on their funder and how their agreements are set up, whether their funder has flexibility to pull those products or not, um, and where control lies in that. For a bank, um, it's slightly different. And it really depends on the size and the maturity of the bank's treasury function and how effective they are at um, at hedging their pipeline. So pre-funding, essentially, loans before they've completed. You need a certain level of scale to be able to do that, to access the right kind of pricing and to be able to afford effectively funding a loan before it generates any income for you. Um, But that's the key protection that banks use and continue to use, actually, during this cycle to make sure that... um, even yesterday's product still in the pipeline on a lower interest rate is profitable when it completes tomorrow because it was funded yesterday. Yeah. And I think that's probably difficult for people to get their head around that have joined the lending market in maybe the last 15 years when we've had very low interest rates. Because as we've seen rates, base rates start to kind of go up over the last 18 months or so, there's been a lot of focus on the gilt yield and swap rates. But How are deposit-led banks, which I think is kind of what you're getting to a little bit in this, so those banks that take deposits in, I don't know, if you're getting money from savers at 4% and lending it out at 5%, you're making a a hefty 25% margin on your money. So how are those deposit-led banks affecting mortgage markets right now? And because I would hope to see that actually, well, those deposit banks can now start to use a lot of their funding lines from savers money and make a margin on that and hopefully be even cheap but that doesn't seem to be the case at the moment does it and not at the moment but it it will you know touch wood with continued good news on inflation because all of this will pivot very quickly if there's some bad news on inflation but touch wood on the current positive trajectory on both inflation coming down and on interest rates we will see that feed through into into product pricing eventually i mean very simply if you go onto Money Saving Experts uh, today, which is Martin Lewis's website, and obviously Martin Lewis is a massive voice in this world with a TV show on Tuesday nights and, you know, man- influences a lot a lot of people with pretty good advice. The top one-year savings rate is 5.8%. That's a, a significantly above base rate. So it suggests that, you know, to, to price money at that level, you think that base rate is going to continue to go up. But I don't really think that's the case. I just think we've had a very volatile market different banks and different lenders need to fund different parts of their balance sheet. And ultimately, it's a competitive market out there now for savings that will will take time to come down. Because if you reprice really aggressively, it's exactly the same as on the lending side, you'll go from having loads of business to absolutely no business. So you need to kind of manage the pricing to get the right number of, of customers in. But if you're, as a lender, if you're paying your deposit depositors 5.8%, for example, you need to be lending the money at significantly more than that because your margin isn't what you lend it at versus what your deposit costs. You've actually, in the middle of that, got very significant costs to run an operation. You need underwriters, you need salespeople, you need brokers, um, and all of that pricing of of loans needs to be paid for. So ultimately, a lender's margin is is more complex than just what it is above the savings rates. But if you look at the buy-to-let and residential mortgage products on the market today, and you think about what deposit costs are, they're actually the cheapest they've been in my whole working career. But it doesn't feel like that because people aren't used to paying interest rates in the kind of five, sixes or sevens. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, and I guess those bigger banks, which have bigger economies of scale and are getting more, their operational expenses on those deposits are obviously going to be less as a percentage, which is why I guess he said that the bigger the bank or organisation, the more likely they are to be able to kind of profit from the deposit-led stuff. Yes, when you and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Adam Lawrence earlier on the podcast before, and we were chatting a few months ago about banks' margins being kind of inflated. So there's a little bit in the mainstream media about, you know, banks love this interest rate environment because they're making significantly higher margins than have previously. Well, that's not true for most. It might be true for the very, very big, big, big banks. Um, but they're also the sorts of banks that do the least lending into our part of the market, you know, for landlords and specialist property investors. So for our part of the market, um, I think generally, you know, it'd be fair to say that at Shawbrook, but also amongst all of our competitors, we have all accepted lower margins in return for kind of continuing to produce loans and keep liquidity flowing in the market to prop it up. So what do you think needs to happen for mortgage rates to reduce? And then I guess a follow-up question to that would be, and what would be the time lag for that event to happen to actually have the pricing reduced to the end user? So I think the timing will depend on the bank, what their own commercial objectives are, how much lending they want to do next year, all those sorts of things. So I think the timing is always difficult. But in terms of what needs to happen, is that markets need to remain confident that the trajectory of interest rates is down rather than the same or or up. So that's all pivots on the inflation data at the moment. So I think it's third Wednesday of the month, the inflation data comes out. There's lots of focus on the overall inflation number, but there's also a lot of focus on CPI in particular um, and what's happening for kind of the service industry and those discretionary type spends that when they're rising suggest that people have still got lots of disposable income and still got lots of money to spend. And when they're falling, suggests that people's disposable income is contracting and tightening and therefore should overall facilitate inflation to fall faster. So all of that is really, really important. So at the moment, inflation has been coming down quite nicely. I think a lot of that has been led by um, kind of pre-built things like the energy price was always going to come down because of how the cap works. So 12 months later, you know, the cap's going to change and that brings it down. So the key thing is what happens to CPI at the moment over the past month or so, the markets have reacted quite positively to that. So the consensus has been that um, inflation is coming down quite quickly and therefore rates will come down more quickly than they thought about a month ago. But we've been here before. We were here in March this year, you know, with very similar swap rates to what we've got today, uh, looking forward to the kind of downward path on cheaper mortgages. And of course, it didn't happen because in June, we got some negative inflation data and actually market expectations and interest rates went back up again. So it's very volatile out there. But what we need is a sustained period of time of positive news on inflation that gives the markets confidence that base rate will start to come down, Mm. you know, kind of tail end of next year or 2025 so a couple of points on what you've just said there the first being kind of it depends on the banks what their kind of business obligations are and things like that as to how quickly they might change the pricing so i remember obviously during uh, at the beginning you were talking about kind of during the pandemic people were refinancing to get these cheap rates locked in and so obviously banks then had a huge pipeline of business they had loads of kind of business coming in they didn't actually need to start reducing rates to get business in or anything like that is that different now in terms of actually banks kind of 
are they still giving a lot of um doing a lot of mortgage business or are they is there any chance that they might think do you know what actually and and this isn't just banks this is the whole mortgage market so there's other lenders as well with different kind of credit lines too do you see on the horizon any point where actually they need to kind of get more business in and the only way to do that is to reduce some rates or are we just nowhere near that yet yeah i I think we are about at that point so obviously lots of banks will work to an annual budget on lending originations and they'll be looking at 2024 and thinking about how much they would like to do and how they're going to do it and price will be one of the considerations within that there's lots of other things you can you can look at you can look at your risk appetite you can look at your operational model you can look at different niches in the market but Price is always going to be, be be one of them. I mean, the overall market. So at the end of Q2 this year, the buy-to-let new lending uh, completions were down just over 50% year on year. Now, that, that's enormous. That yeah. is a significant amount to be down. However, 2022 was very strong. So it's perhaps yeah. not yeah. quite as dark as the figures suggest. What is it against, say, pre-pandemic levels or something like that, early 2019, 2018? Because that that kind of gives more of an indication, because if your starting point was very high, it's a bit like saying, hey, during the pandemic, London, I don't know, shared room rates had dropped low, had gone up loads after the pandemic. Well, yeah, because their starting point was so low because the pricing had gone down so much that the year before. So it's always kind of a bit of context is needed. I, I still assume they're quite far down, but maybe not 50%. Yeah, more like 20, 25% down. So still significantly down. And, and buy to let as a whole is more down than the residential mortgage market, for instance, which is is also down, but is held up better because it's kind of life event driven, whereas buy to let, buy to let remortgage is a choice because it's you choosing to keep your investment rather than sell it. And a purchase is a choice because it's choosing to add an investment to your portfolio, whereas the residential mortgage market sometimes isn't a choice because everyone needs somewhere somewhere to live. The other interesting thing, though, is when you dig scratch below those figures, um, there is there is some interesting things in there. So lending to portfolio landlords is down much less than lending to non-portfolio landlords. So it suggests that appetite in that portfolio landlord space, which probably is refinance driven, but the kind of commitment to the market is stronger in that segment um i mean is, you... that, is that what it shows or does it show maybe they've got more equity in and, and are not affected so much i don't know like it's i think it's so hard to kind of when you see these things happen then go back and go well why is that and i think i don't know i've, I've just learned that there's never one thing that moves the market it's one thing in a context of various other things so for example like the interest rates going up will mean house prices go down. Well, not if everyone's on a fixed rate and there's a tiny proportion that it's kind of about timing. So there's so many kind of all these nuances where as before, I don't know, you go back to 1989 where the majority of mortgages were variable. Whereas now I think it's something like 80% of mortgages are on fixed terms. And then, well, how many are actually coming due in the next few months? And then what's the loan to value on them? And how much has their wages gone up over time and or rents to cover it and things like that. There's so many kind of variables, aren't there? There's an enormous amount of variables and you just got to do your best to try and work your way through it. But on that specific point around kind of equity for the portfolio landlords, I don't think that's the case because what I'd expect to, would expect to see if LTVs were a problem is more distress. So the market is seeing an increase in, in arrears, 
which is driven, um, I suspect, primarily by people falling off of fixed rates um, and their, their rents not keeping pace with the, the, increase, the, the same extent of the increase of the mortgage payment. But there's not um, kind of a wave of bank repossessions or um, things that would suggest that people are in a real problem and, and are having to kind of exit their loans because they need to, because they can't afford them anymore. So I think it's, I mean, my conclusion from it is that some people will always sell at the end of their fixed rates. So some people will always look at a property investment and go, you know what, that's not worth the hassle anymore. Or actually, I could redeploy that capital often into another property that I think would be better for me. So there will always be some of that. But I think at the moment, that's happening more in the amateur landlord space than it is in the, the portfolio landlord space. And I think that's to do with professionalisation of the market, which has been a long-term trend. And that commitment to property versus... Um, kind of just doing it when it's easy and when it when it's a great time to make lots of money, which is not really the case at the moment. You need to think hard and work hard. Absolutely. And I think that's a great kind of lesson to everyone. I'm, I'm sure those who have kind of bought into the market in the last two to three years are probably feeling the pain a hell of a lot more than than people who've been in it longer. And it kind of goes back to the thing is, are you good at what you do or are you are you jumping into a market that is good compared to every other market? And when you've got very low interest rates like we have over the last sort of 15 years, on the whole, the market's been kind. And so you can jump in and ride a nice wave. And yeah, you've done well to pick that market over, say, I don't know, a different type of investment class. But I think the key is, and what people are learning now is, do you know what? If you want to if the market's not doing well, then you need to have some edge over that market to get superior returns. And it's harder than it's been, for sure. And I think people are starting to realise that and go, do you know what? This is, Actually, for me and my skill set and my wants and needs and the time I can give it and things like that, this probably isn't right for me now. And there's other things like, I don't know, money markets, bond markets, various other things that are maybe take up less of my time, potentially less risk and more secure returns. I guess so it's yeah I, I definitely think that whole professionalization of the market is is has happened and is going to continue to happen for well for those reasons for the tax reasons for legislation all those sort of things yeah and I think you know we mentioned earlier deposit rates it, you know that 5.8 percent looks pretty good you know you compare it to the yield you might get on a, a south buy to let property anyway yeah um, and, and it looks pretty good the difference with those with that professional property mindset is they realize that whilst this year they might even get outperformed by a deposit rate at the end of the day deposits are not a leveraged investment so 5.8 is what you're going to earn whereas on property you can earn um, 5.8 on the property but only actually put 25 percent of the cash in to achieve that because you leverage it and that this is a moment in time and that that might be what you can get on a deposit rate today, but it's not necessarily what you can get tomorrow. And the later you get into property, generally, the more expensive it is because the market ultimately goes up over time. So that, but that's a very different long-term mindset to what well, should I do with my money today? Exactly. And that's the thing about property is I think the great thing is it's a commodity in terms of it's got that use for people to have a roof over their heads. It can be fixed income if you're doing it at a huge scale, like some of these funds do and REITs. But for most of us, it's private equity. Like you say, it's that leverage purchase of something. And what we're really, and although people might focus on cash flow, really what it's all about is total returns over a period of time. And so if you are looking at, I don't know, buying a UK gilt that gives 5% over 10 years, 
Well, yes, you get 5% every year and then you get your money back that you put in. If you buy a property in the south of England that yields 5%, yeah, you're going to put that money in. You're going to yield your 5% every year. But actually, it's not going to be every year because rents go up over time. And so if you add 2% every year compounding, that's going to increase your total returns, but also everything else staying equal. If that property is still valued at 5% of its income in 10 years' time, well, your capital value has also gone up. And then if you can get a mortgage and leverage it, well, then there's all sorts of other great benefits coming into play, depending on obviously on the price of that mortgage. But I think that's still a good reason. And I think what we've had over the last couple of years is people having a much shorter term kind of outlook on property, whereas I don't think that's the right thing. It's not the right asset class for a short term kind of get in and out quickly, make your return. Unless, of course, you're doing something like trading or developing. But it's, yeah, it's certainly a, a tricky one. But I think that just goes to show how people need to be very kind of do their do their thinking about what it is they want from an investment in terms of what they want to put in, how long they want to be in it, and what they think that market's going to do over time. And it's not just capital values, rents and, and vice versa. So at the moment, we're seeing in the mortgage market a lot of, obviously, there's higher rates now. But one thing that seems to be happening, certainly in the buy-to-let market, is that in order for people to be able to refinance and get those higher loan to values that they need so they don't have to, they're not kind of stuck having to pay back the bank in equity and things like that is that they're bringing down the mortgage companies are bringing down the interest rate but they're putting up a very big arrangement fee in order to compensate them for that now i'd love to hear your thoughts on this because one thing i cannot get my head around is the fact that the whole reason they're doing this is so that people can borrow at a higher loan to value. But really, in essence, what they're doing is the loan to value is going even more to that because this arrangement fee is put onto the loan. So it means what they've got to pay back versus what the value of the property is, is even higher. So they might be getting a 75% loan to value. But in reality, that with the arrangement fee put on and that adding to the amount of capital they've got to put back, their loan to value is even higher than that. So Are these banks then thinking, well, it's all right because capital values are going to go up over the time of this mortgage? Or am I missing something? Sorry to interrupt this fantastic episode, but I just wanted to share some really exciting news with you. After a long time of wanting to be involved in a financial services business, I'm very pleased to say that myself, and regular guest on the broadcast, Adam Lawrence, have bought into 978 Finance. We are a directly authorised FCA-regulated mortgage broker who specialises in buy-to-let mortgages, commercial mortgages, and bridging and development loans. I've been very passionate about finance for a long time and have been part of financing a lot of very complex deals, as well as your typical buy-to-let and commercial mortgages. 978 Finance focuses on the customer journey and embodies the pragmatic solution-orientated finance for each case that I absolutely love. It's got some very, very difficult financing deals over the line for me, and now I'm really pleased to be part of the business. So if you do have any new mortgages, refinances, bridging or development needs, please do get in touch with us. You can either contact myself or you can email simon at 
finance.com and we will make sure you're looked after. Let's get back to the show. No, I think you've highlighted the risk very succinctly there, Rod. Um, you need to look at your loans value based on your, your t- what you owe the bank in totality, which is what you borrowed plus your arrangement fee. And every bank will be looking at that very closely with the product design on this stuff. So generally speaking, if, you know, you, uh, arrangement fees historically might have been kind of one and a half, two percent. Now we've got products out in the market. There's one product that's a 10 percent arrangement fee. I mean, it's almost the entire year's worth of bridging loan interest from before. So that's an extreme. But there is a middle ground where lots have options at kind of a 5% arrangement fee level. Now, if you're adding 5% to 75% on, say, a two-year fixed rate, you're at 80% with a two-year outlook. You've not given yourself much time for capital value to come back. And I think there is a risk that you get hooked on this. You kind of get get hooked on high arrangement fee in order to offset a a low interest rate type products because you've not given that asset enough time to increase in value to improve your loan to value position or even more importantly you've not given the rent enough time to grow so that you can actually afford a kind of higher interest rate lower arrangement fee product in the future and you can't keep adding five percent on every two years because it's just very high risk strategy as to whether the market growth will get you will keep you at the right loan to value over the long term so but over on, on a five-year fixed, you might feel slightly differently because you've got quite a long um, outlook then and quite a long path for rental inflation and for capital values to improve the loan-to-value position. You need to think very carefully about your asset, whether that's right for it, what you would do at the expiry of that fixed rate to keep going. But on the flip side, I do think there's a place for them in the market at the moment because rates are higher. Everyone expects interest rates to come down over the long term, by how much and when is the question, but over the long term, they're expected to come down. So in order to facilitate people's ability to trade in the near term, it's a tactic where it just might make a deal work that otherwise wouldn't work. So you need to put too big a deposit in to stimulate activity, which I think is a good thing. The other uh, consequence of it on the refinance side is that we have just gone through kind of two or three years of very rapid capital growth in most regions. Now, rental growth is also very rapid, but not as quick as mortgage rates have grown, probably about half as quick as mortgage rates have grown. So from a cash flow perspective, the point you mentioned earlier, Rod, about property being a long term game, you know, you've got to look at your total sales over the period. Well, that's all well and good. But you've got to stay in the game for that period. And that's where cash flow is super important. So the ability to be able to trade part of your capital value that you've just enjoyed for the past two and a half years for a lower interest rate that supports your cash flow. As part of that long-term investment strategy makes a lot of sense to me. So it's not every deal, but I think think carefully about the property, what you're trying to achieve, what your exit is going to be. And ultimately, the market's delivered more choice for people. I think that's overall a good thing. Because I, I mean, if I was working for a bank doing that, I'd be concerned. I'd be thinking, hey, we're taking a lot of risk here because what happens then? Are we going to have to go down? I guess they're just looking at, well, we've still got, I don't know, 20, if, even if it's pushed it up to 80%, we've still got 20% on where we are to get our money back if we need to kind of repossess and go through all that. But I don't know, for me, it just it just seems it seems a bit risky on the lender's part. But I guess it's if they want to get business, like what's more risk is to not do anything. There's, you know, you're right. The risk of not writing business is a, a risk that's different bank, but it's a, a risk to anyone ultimately. Sure. But the loan to value is not your only sort of risk mitigation you know the, the reality is the amount of deals that go to repossession in the uk is incredibly small now 
So in some ways, the other risk that you've got to keep an eye on as a bank is your probability of default. And if you improve your borrower's cash flow position, you decrease the likeliness of them going into default, which is you know the, the best outcome for, for everyone. So you need to look at all of these risks in the whole. It's not just about LTV. Because I guess from a bank's point of view, if you've got loans on your book that are in default, it might affect your ability to uh, get credit lines as well. Is that going to be the case or not? Not really credit lines because banks are generally retail deposit funded. So and a retail depositor wouldn't really generally dig into kind of what that bank's credit performance looks like because we have the financial services compensation scheme now that protects people up to just over £80,000 of savings in any UK bank. So it's not as much that, it's more the cost of running your business because you need to set aside more capital for those loans and that is a significant cost for banks. Great, great. Okay, so back on to the inflation key, which seems to be what everything is kind of based on in these lending markets. And obviously following CPI, what are your thoughts about what's going to happen for that over maybe the next 12 months and 24 months? Because like you say, it'd be great if we can see a bit more sustained time. So maybe a few quarters actually showing that direction of travel. Although, like you said, the last readings were very much influenced by energy. Energy caps are rising again in January. And we've got other issues that we had where wages had shot up as well on the whole a lot like even things like the nhs agreement had did move the market in terms of the whole uk's kind of wage growth things like that what are your thoughts on where we're headed inflation wise over the next yeah like i say 12 to 24 months because the other thing we've got is people feeling that pain there's only been a small proportion of the UK that have felt it from mortgage rates because lots of people have been fixed rates. And like you said, arrears, although they're much higher than they were last year, again, it goes back to where are we benchmarking from? They're still not really that much higher than kind of pre-pandemic. So are we ever going to see that pain if rates stay here and wages keep creeping up? Or is it, well, actually, we've got 800,000 properties coming off their fixed loan term next in the next 12 months and they'll then feel that pain and then we've got more following and things like that what what are your thoughts there i think if rates stayed at this level for a very long period of time it's difficult to see how the pain doesn't come in some shape or form and how that doesn't have a knock-on impact to house prices given the subdued levels of transactions that we see which are significantly below the pandemic levels at the moment but that's not really likely to happen because there's just too many variables it's just far too many variables so you know wage growth is an interesting one that's kind of come off quite a lot but then on the flip side we've got the national insurance cut coming in which is effectively a pay increase not a very big one for many people but it's still a pay increase and then we've got minimum wage going up quite considerably next april which again is a pay increase for some um at the same time the trajectory on inflation does look like it's on the on the kind of downward curve at the moment. There are risks to that. You know, lots of people thought we'd be in a recession now. We're not. We don't look like we're going into one. All of that would generally support inflation increasing. And um, a common sense view would say that when you've had a period of such rapid inflation, it's inevitable that it will cool because it's not sustainable for it to continue at that rate. That doesn't mean prices are going down. That just means they're going up much less quickly. Well, what about the 70s? But cheese. this is what I mean. It's just so many variables. Yeah. So it's so hard to call. So 
generally speaking, I'd say is a consensus, the financial markets less bullish on inflation coming down and therefore believe interest rates will stay higher for longer. But that view has started to shift in the last week or so, just a little bit. The economists are quite different. They're generally um, quite concerned about the fundamentals of the economy and things like low levels of productivity, tracking things like manufacturing output and things like this. And their, their beliefs are led by that sort of view of the wider economy, and they feel that rates will therefore need to come down more quickly in order to generate economic activity. So there is a difference between those two sets of experts and what they think what they think will happen. It's so hard to call. I mean, you know, to anyone listening who's in property, my only advice I can give you, which is, you know, my experience the last 18 months is, if you want to do a deal today, you've got to look at that deal with what's available today and see if it stacks or not. And if it stacks, great, go ahead, do it. If it doesn't stack, it doesn't stack, right? And you know, it's maybe not the right deal to do it at the right, the right point in the market. But trying to time the market and guess what will happen with interest rates is extremely difficult. And you know, ultimately, you're unlikely to get it right. Absolutely. Interesting point you made on the national insurance cuts being like a pay rise, certainly for some people, but for others, depending on where their wages are, you've got all this fiscal drag. So like people being pushed up into wage brackets. And the reality is the majority of people who actually own homes will have higher incomes. And so will be negatively affected by that. Although by to let landlords, you're looking at, well, who who are our renters and, and what are they? So this, again, lots and lots of moving parts to consider. I just think it's, it's, it's key to focus on your market. So if you're lending to, I don't know, in an area where it's actually lower household incomes, it's going, well, well how, are those, how are they affected versus how they used to be? So it's not, are they improving? Nominally, it's, are they improving in real terms? What's their percentage of, I don't know, income that's going on rent? And if that's staying the same, well, is everything else staying the same? Are their energy costs gone up by 30%? Because where's that coming from? Because they might not have discretionary spending and things like that. So, and I think that can go to I don't know, mortgage owners as well. I think I think house owners are protected somewhat a bit more in terms of with fixed rates, and also I do think these wages going up they have gone up pretty well over the last few years. That's certainly having effect. And also, you've got to remember, homeowners are not usually on interest-only mortgages; they're repaying capital, and over a five-year term. That makes a big difference. So a lot of these buy-to-let landlords that focus on interest only over the past few years where it's been, yeah, great, interest nothing, inflation can blow away. Well, hold on a minute. If suddenly your new product is at a higher rate than inflation, then is inflation blowing away your uh, your your debt? And it, is this now a time for those portfolio landlords who have been and grown a portfolio over a pretty good period is it now time for them to start thinking, right, how am I looking at my portfolio? It's been very much private equity and building capital over these periods. Is it now turning into more of a fixed income product for me? And should I be a little bit less kind of risky in terms of debt? Should I be looking at paying down some of that, some of that loan to value, that debt, a way to protect myself over the over I don't know, the coming high or sticky period of high rates? I think I think it's a really good question to ask yourself. It is. And actually, some of the landlord surveys that have come out recently, we're already seeing that, you know, actually in both markets, you've seen that in the residential market as well. But in both markets, some people who are able to are choosing to, to repay some debt and be less highly levered as one of the 
one of the tactics to kind of trade through this period is also a very interesting point you made rod about looking at the demographics of your tenants because i think one of the big silver linings for landlords during this period has been the level of rental inflation that we've seen which has offset not all but some of the mortgage interest increases especially when you consider that you know for a portfolio landlord they may well have had some loans rolled off a fixed rate but many not have rolled off a fixed rate yet so all of that softens the impact and gives time to be able to manage it manage the change through through the investment cycle but i do worry and i think one of the probably one of the biggest risks to the buy select market in general at the moment is just um tenant affordability overall because the rent rental inflation is is most effective for a landlord when you're going for a new letting because you'll advertise that property or whatever the market rent is for that area when you've got a tenant that's already in there passing through rental increase is more difficult and if some of those tenants find themselves have an affordability ceiling and an affordability cap, um, it's a very different scenario to manage a tenant who's struggling to pay versus simply dealing with a, a high, uh, higher mortgage interest rate on a property where you can do a fresh letting for someone who can afford the higher market rent that, that's now needed for that property. So I do think that's one of the things that the market seems to have managed quite well so far, but will be a continuing challenge as that wage growth falls away. Daryl, that's been super interesting. Is there any other points that you want to make on the mortgage markets at the moment that I guess investors should be, or property investors in particular, should be kind of thinking about? No, I mean, look, the thing I said earlier about look at what's available today, look, look at what's in front of you, I think it's one of the biggest lessons for me from the last kind of 18 months. You can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow, but you can still find good deals um, in the market today. Lock them in secure them, go ahead and do them, and they're still a good investment for you. And don't worry too much if it might have been a better investment if you'd done it in one month's time. You can't control all of that. But what you can control is doing good deals and doing that consistently um, over a period of time. And then, look, I think despite lots of the challenges that we've spoken about today, the buy-to-let market and also the commercial property market as well, they're, they're here to stay. They're leveraged investments. The fundamentals work. Every economic cycle will come with its moment of challenge. This is one of those, but we'll trade through it and we'll continue to have a strong private rental sector for the future. So I'm very positive about the future in general. And it's an interesting time to actually learn about how you adapt your business to, to thrive in, in a time that's more difficult to trade in than it has been for the last 10 years or so. I think that last sentence is so key. It's just being about being able to have some flexibility and being able to adapt depend on what the market's doing to, to get the most out of it. Daryl, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Always great fun. And um, I hope we can get you back on the Rodcast soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Rod.